0: Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Making Action Happen. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. And we have special guest Jeff Hurd with us today. Uh, He's come in special just to talk with us about um, not only the race for CD3, which everybody's been talking about. I mean, Mm. this is national news (laughs) kind of thing, Um, but uh, just some of the issues that are going on and and some of the... um, preview of coming attractions for a 2024 uh, election. So thanks, Jeff, so much for being with us. Uh, we've um, You joined Action 22 uh, probably, it's been close to a year now, I think. It's and been we've, a while. And we've had some really great conversations, and you've been over here a few times, and uh, we're just really excited uh, to, uh, to have you here. But uh, I think everybody wants to know and is going to, you know, the, Wait, the I question. Impor- no, like,
0: I got the most important question.
1: Okay.
2: How many miles have you put on your car since oh, this has started? Oh, boy, thousands not, is the thousands answer. I don't have yeah. a specific, but it's a large number. So it's, it's, yeah. yeah, I'm a frequent flyer at the uh, service shop and getting things looked at on the on the car. So, so
1: do you average, I'm going to guess that you average 4,000 to 5,000 miles a month right now. That's
2: a pretty good guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's.
1: I know because we, I put about 3,000 miles on yep. my car a month. So I'm, I'm guessing that you're close to that.
2: And then the hours that you spend depend on... On what the weather's like. Yes, uh, we are right. heading across oh the state. Gosh. And those yeah. hours add up if you're sitting on Monarch Pass uh, waiting for the snowplows to clear the way. So. Yeah, well,
0: I always joked around that sometimes, like usually in December, January in Colorado, you could probably get to the Gulf of Mexico faster than you could drive from Pueblo to Grand Junction. <laughs> That's true. Especially if take it. I
2: 70. Yeah,
1: you know. I've done it. So, um, yeah. Well, thanks
2: for having me. It is great to be here. It,
1: we, we're left I thought you were going having...
2: to say what Brian's middle name was. A D. D is.
1: Uh, was the last time. I, I, I think okay. the last thing I Demato. put on your paycheck.
0: <laughs> De Mateo? No, it's De Mateo.
1: Was it De Mateo? Yeah.
0: Something like that.
1: I meant it to be Demato, like De-Mato. D apostrophe oh. M A T O. But, okay. um, I've been doing that. Um, we make a joke about that quite a bit. So I've got to ask you first, um, and inform cause you've been in the race and then your opponent who um is a spectacle in so many ways um decided to drop out and run in a um in a different uh, district which we all sort of there was there was lots of noises made um at that point um different things said um but you were in it from the very beginning now now there's a whole lot more people in it. How's that transition been for you? Because uh, um, you, I mean, you've got a head start.
2: Yes. Well, first, thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here, and I really am excited by the work that Action Twenty Two is doing and getting to know you guys better and and seeing the great things that are happening here in Southeast Colorado, in large part because of you. So it's great to be oh, here. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Uh, w- this is my first time running. For a political office, so it's been kind of an interesting experience. Mm-hmm. I'm not a career politician, and hadn't even run for dog catcher before. So, mm-hmm. the attention has been something that I certainly expected. But uh, my plan is going to be the same, which is to stay focused on policy and solutions for Western and Southern Colorado. That's the reason I got into this race, and regardless of who i'm facing in the primary the focus is going to stay the same and that's on improving lives for families and for small businesses and for communities in southern and western colorado so plan stays the same regardless of who's in the race
0: and it's frustrating too because we, we saw this with the mayor election that just happened this week in pueblo where a lot of the attacks and i'm seeing this across the board and in, in other states and other regions where you have newcomers coming into the race somebody that hasn't run before and th- it's almost like a a negative thing. They're trying to turn it into a negative thing. Well, I know what I'm doing because I've, you know, I've been elected and I've ran many times and, you know, he or she doesn't have experience because they haven't done this. I'm like, that's not a bad thing, yeah. right? You know, you're not a career politician. And with that, I don't know if everybody knows your background, but why don't you just give, tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure. Uh, so I'm a, I am was born here in Colorado. I grew up on the Western Slope, a proud graduate of Grand Junction High School. Uh, it took me about one year of high school football to realize I have only about this much athletic talent. And <laughs> that if I was going to succeed, I'd have to work hard. And so I did that, went to college and uh, came back home uh, to practice law. So I'm an attorney. Most of my law practice is representing rural electricians cooperatives on the western slope Uh, and through that i've come to see the challenges and the opportunities that we face in western and southern colorado so i'm a family man also uh, married for 18 years to my wife barbara and we have uh, five children together our oldest is a freshman in high school and our youngest is still in the school of hard knocks he's still in his diapers, so (laughs) they keep us busy but um, they're part of the reason that i'm running is i believe that um, we're being left behind in western and southern colorado and our i've heard it said that our greatest export are children. They grow up and they leave and they don't come back and I'd like to be somebody that is part of a solution that gives our children and our grandchildren uh, opportunities that if they want they can stay and live and raise their families in western and southern Colorado and have good jobs that support their not just their families but their communities as well. So that's the reason I'm running and that's my personal why and I think you're you're right Brian. I uh, certainly haven't run for office before but I'm a problem solver and I've done that for my clients and don't take my word for it. Talk to the folks that know me and have worked with me over the past uh, decade in rural Colorado. And they'll tell you that um, I'm smart and I'm humble and I'm hardworking and I get results for rural Colorado.
1: We appreciate that. And mm. and like Brian said, we, we kind of, uh, we like, I think um, newcomers to that, but every, and this is one of my favorite things to learn and understand about a candidate is um, they, you go into this Process with certain um, things that you see or certain perceptions, but as you go along, those perceptions kind of change. You learn a lot while you're doing it. What have been some of the things that you that you started this, and then in the last several months that you've been in it, that you're like, oh, this okay, that's a new, that's a new perspective Mm -hmm. that I wasn't expecting. And that really makes a difference in in what you're doing.
2: That's a great question, Sarah, I would probably say the issue that has come to the forefront for me since I started running, that was on my radar screen, but it wasn't front and center is the border and securing the border. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you that that issue and uh, illegal immigration and the crime, the drugs that are coming over the border is something that is now front and center. And, And that's actually my top issue that I'm focused on in this race. So that's, something that i was certainly aware of and concerned about but in the past several months has come to the front and center of of my race and that's an issue that's uh, of critical importance Mm -hmm. for colorado and for our country
0: especially right now with everything happening and you're even seeing kind of a shift from the, the the democrat side where you know they haven't been perception they haven't been that strong on border policy but you have um you know fetterman coming out saying like what's wrong with saying we need to secure the border? That's right. And and you're seeing more and more of that side of the aisle um, saying, like, you know what, this is a problem. We're seeing this. Um, As you travel the district, and we've brought it up on here many times, you know, you have some of the poorest counties, poorest towns in the country, right next to some of the richest, most well-off towns in the country. Um, What what are you hearing from the – the average person like what are they concerned about what is their number one issue like what what do they want to see from you if you get elected
2: well uh, certainly the border is something that comes up frequently in crime uh mm-hmm. and that's an issue uh, front and center i would say and there's primarily uh there is a federal role in that as well there's uh, i was reading about it's called High-Intensity Drug Trafficking Areas. Areas, yep. areas. There's some DEA funding that's possible uh, that the federal government can have a role in helping address some of the crime and drugs that are flowing into our communities. And that's certainly – I see the federal government as a partner in solving mm-hmm. that. Um, certainly, we need help from state and local um, authorities as well. But that's something that's come to my mind uh Front and center is that immigration issue and trying to think of ways in which the federal government can help solve that problem in addition to um, securing the border.
0: And the the Haida areas or zones, I forget how they do it, Um, you know, in the Four Corners area that used to be a part of it and then it's not, you know, it's not anymore. And you saw that the, the Haida um concentrated on the front range and it was interesting over the years because i was doing this for a long time and involved with that group and that stuff um you saw a lot of it just go over to the west slope yeah and you know it used to be pueblo to denver you know highway 50 and then now you go over to the west slope and that's where a lot of it is and i don't think people realize that um in a lot of these counties that have a highway going through it or a major roadway, you know, there's times where you may not even have a police officer on the road. Um, you know, between two and six in the morning, you might have one person within 50 miles with right. a 20 minute response time. And we had uh, Victor Galarza; he runs the vigilance project, and he was on. And he's he's from the Four Corner area, and he tells me just horror stories about how something will happen and there's no coverage whatsoever. Yeah. And he's been an advocate to get the Haida. Uh, program back on that side just to get those resources um so it's you know we we always joke that um you know denver
2: ignores southern colorado and i would say like have you been to the west slope (laughs) no we're we're struggling out there but i know it's throughout this district and you're right there is a lot of poverty and there's a lot of families that are struggling um another issue that i hear a lot about is energy and energy development and the need to unlock the the opportunities that we have under, under the ground in Western and Southern Colorado and helping to uh, create that new energy economy and, and transition as we move towards more and more electrification. That's also something that I think is a, a real opportunity for Western and Southern Colorado and, and jobs and lowering those energy costs. So that's also something else that I hear loud and clear when I'm on the campaign trail.
1: Yeah. So um, when you're out there and, and there. uh, You know, it's an interesting thing when you are having these sit-down conversations. Everybody has an idea. Have you heard any ideas that you thought, yeah, let's let's uh, explore that a little bit more um, with regard to with regard energy? Because I mean, these are you're talking in your area on the western slope. This is the what we're talking about when we talk about just transition, for sure. And of course, we're in the middle of. That here in Pueblo right now, and in those discussions, and so um, have have you heard a lot of offering on solutions, or do you feel like this is still a very politicized issue? what What are your feelings as you guys are talking about this?
2: I think people recognize the challenge that's here and the opportunity, and I think that's something that stretches beyond just partisan boundaries. And I hear a lot of folks in distressed communities, Republican, Democrat, unaffiliated, who are talking about the need to uh, develop energy in a responsible. Um, And they recognize that the best way to uh, reduce global greenhouse gas emissions is to get energy out of Colorado. We have some of the cleanest hydrocarbons in the world, and uh, we need to get those exported uh, to help with energy independence here. Uh, in in the united states but also helping our allies overseas and it's a natural it's a national security issue it's a it's an international security issue and it's also something that i tell my democratic friends if you genuinely care about reducing global greenhouse gas emissions then you ought to support uh, energy in colorado in our natural gas industry our clean coal industry Um, and then also looking at new options as well i i've heard it said uh, all of the above energy my view is that's good i would say best of the above. Let's look and see which of those options is the best that makes the most sense. And to be open to thinking of things that are not necessarily um, on the table, small modular reactors, something that, you know, provided that the community buys into those solutions, I think that's something that we should look at as well. So all options on the table, let's pick the best ones. Mm -hmm.
1: Thank you so much. For me, you answered that question correctly. <laughs> um, we, you know, we've had these discussions, of course, locally right here um, so much. And uh, it's uh, the heat has um, been turned up on, on that for sure, pun intended. Um, so what else are you hearing? So we're hearing the same thing. I mean, people are constantly talking to us about public safety. They're talking to us about energy. Um, what else are they?
0: Inflation inflation is a big
2: one. Cost of living is a big deal. Yeah, particularly in rural parts of the state. Um, I read a Colorado Sun article earlier this year that talked about how the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, numbers with respect to inflation don't accurately account for the rural component of those costs. And folks in the state that have to travel further and pay more for gas and more wear on their car end up getting hurt even more by inflation than folks that live in urban areas Mm -hmm. of the state. And so, yes, the cost of groceries, the cost of utilities, the cost of energy, you know, in in my law practice, I work with electric, rural electric cooperatives that are faced with upward rate pressure that are caused by some of these bad regulations. And so Mm -hmm. those costs hurt rural Colorado in a special way that I don't think is necessarily reflected in just the government's Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers. And so that's something that I think Think we need to focus on in rural Colorado and organizations like Action 22 are at the forefront of of uh, speaking as one strong voice um, to address those those cost issues that hurt rural Colorado in ways that others don't experience in more urban areas.
1: So we um, as we were preparing for some of these discussions into um, your point, we looked at um we looked at, you know, where's, where's inflation the worst and Colorado was number two on two separate lists for was that. And one was housing. And the other was as to your point, um, about sort of 85% of, of Colorado was rural. And, um, that factor they had factored in, yes, that was part of the problem. Um, and then, uh, we've, we see it, um, right where we're at where i live south of i live south of pueblo um and i live up in the mountains but there's but we saw a literally 50 cents per gallon difference oh boy between um the exit and you know the gas station at the exit there and pueblo which was literally 20 minutes drive difference between those two places, stay off of the interstate, and all, but it's fifty per. It's fifty cents per gallon difference, and so it's almost um, like you can't. That's a disparity that really nobody's accounting for on
2: that rural side. Absolutely, and then probably the average income of the folks that are paying that. Higher gas price is lower, so the average household income. So not only are their costs higher, but the resources that they have to pay them are lower. So yeah, it's really rural Colorado is getting squeezed big time by mm-hmm. inflation. So it's definitely an issue that we need to address, and uh, because it hurts rural Coloradans disproportionately.
1: Mm-hmm. So we have to bring up um, veterans, um, and and so that's Brian's area of expertise, um, and and we've had. Um, We have lots of discussions because there's a lot of of, um, uncertainty in that Mm -hmm. space right now. Um, I'm sure in in your travels, you've had lots of conversations with lots of veterans. Absolutely. What are you hearing from them?
2: Well, um, first of all, this district has a very high percentage of veterans in it. Um, I I know in Pueblo County alone, I believe there are about 17,000 veterans. It's tough to tell. Some of the statistics can be in, in kind of a range, but it is a big number. And a lot of those veterans are suffering when it comes to a lack of quality medical care. mental health care. Uh, And that's something that we owe our veterans, particularly those who are service disabled, but all veterans, period. We owe them the best that we can give in terms of uh, health care and benefits and qualifying for benefits. And I don't think we're doing an adequate job of that right now. That's a lesson that, or a message, I should say, that I've heard loud and clear from veterans. And I know that there's always discussions about uh, facilities and, and, and providing, uh, proper doctors and nurses to care for veterans. That's something that we need to keep front and center. Um, and, and cut through some of the bureaucratic difficulties. I mean, I think we have four different regions here in the state of Colorado when it comes to serving veterans and, 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 and the quality of care that our veterans are getting in the third congressional district is not acceptable. Uh, and that's something that I think we, we can and we must do better on.
1: So how do you do – so just out of curiosity, and again, this is Brian's expertise, so um, I – sort of <laughs> hear what you know some of the things that and he's having discussions constantly some and he has some <laughs> ideas but um i i'd want to hear your ideas on you know it's i think it it's difficult um when you're talking about numbers and they're you're, you know where do you di- where does the federal government put um resources when they're looking at it from a numbers perspective how do how do we bridge that gap
2: well i would say the people that i would talk to first and last would be people like brian veterans and I would get their perspective on what the needs are and how best to allocate those dollars. Um, I think it's critical that we spend them in the best way. Uh, Right now we need to make sure that we're getting quality healthcare practitioners to provide services to our veterans because right now I think the weight that is um, encountered by many veterans is not acceptable. Uh, And so making sure that the dollars go to recruiting uh, the best professionals that we can have, keep those waiting times low, making sure that our veterans get uh, – Their their qualifications complete as quickly as possible, get the rating. I think that the PACT Act was something that I think really moved things forward with Mm -hmm. respect to veterans, not only those who were facing burn pits like Brian and, and other veterans, but also going back to, I think even Agent Orange is yeah. a part of the PACT Act. So, it was it perfect? No, but we don't want to make the perfect the enemy the good, and we should always be focused on how to use those dollars in the most effective way that we can to provide the best service that we can to our veterans. So, um, talking first and last to veterans would be something that would be high on my priority list, and and not pretending that I have all the answers, um, but listening to ways that, especially that are creative, that can take advantage of, of um, saving and and using resources in the best way to provide the best care.
0: No, that 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 actually yes.
2: That, but that yeah, Brian, sense. tell me what am I yeah, missing there? No, no,
0: it's. Um it's a hard fight, and I, I've said it on this. Like, the, the VA, back when I started doing this kind of work, you know, it was um, the VA was the worst. It, it was the worst agency to deal with, and you had all these problems, and, you know, you had this influx of veterans coming in from Afghanistan and Iraq. So the VA was already struggling before they received, you know, 100,000 new people per year in their, their caseload. Um, and then they started to do too good because we always joke like you know social security was better than the va and then the va kind of went past social security and we saw the va making mm. some of the right choices but i think unfortunately with um congress and the administrations and various changes it was almost like they were trying to fix it but they kept changing so much and when you have like the largest bureaucracy of the federal government so the largest bureaucracy in the largest mm. bureaucracy in the world you know it kind of gets gummed up and and stuff happens um the for here in Colorado, um, you know, one thing, and it's, it's a shortage of healthcare providers and it's not just the VA it's, um, talk to any rural hospital, any rural clinic. Um, you know, we have, it's better now, but you know, at one point there were some counties in the third district that had one insurance provider. Um, and then you have everybody on Medicaid, you know, when we switched over to the the health exchange and the Medicaid, some of the, the rules and regulations of that, they put a lot of people on Medicaid in Colorado. um, And that's a whole other discussion about how that money is going to pay for it after this. But um, so you have somebody, a veteran or a regular person living say in Durango or not even Durango, say a, a border County or border town, their doctors in a different state. Right. And now they don't have insurance. So they're on Medicaid. And where cannot you cannot use Colorado Medicaid in Kansas, or you know, and that was something that we always talked about would be some sort of um, compact with portability of Medicaid with the surrounding states.
2: Oh, I like um, that.
0: And and, it, and it, it's a tough conversation because you know Medicaid is run by the state; it is funded federally. But with the veterans, it's the same way because you have some veterans living in Colorado that go to a different state and then say they can't make it due to weather, which we just talked about how bad it and hard it is to drive sometimes. And so they go to a different VA clinic. So instead of going to Albuquerque, you know, they come up to Pueblo because it's easier to get to Pueblo. It's really crazy in that the Pueblo VA clinic cannot talk to the Albuquerque clinic. They can't even get the records, you know, and to me, that seems like a very simple solution you know just w- if i had a magic wand the first thing i'd do with the va is to make it so if you go to a va clinic in pueblo and then you do go to a different one in a different state wherever it is they can like punch on the computer and say oh here's your medical records you know or you're in the system we can see you i'm sure the irs can do that <laughs> social security can do it finally but why can't the VA? why can't the VA just simply be able to access stuff like that? Just simple things. And it's it's a lot. You can spend an entire career as a congressman or senator trying to fix the VA and maybe get a little bit done just because, again, it's that the largest bureaucracy in the largest <laughs> bureaucracy. And it's
2: tough. Brian, that's uh, certainly frustrating to hear. And that would be something that yeah. I think we absolutely need to focus on, that lack of connection within the VA, its yeah. system itself. You know, one thing I would say also that I would do in Congress is focus on mm-hmm. constituent services. And, mm-hmm. you know, that may be one specific way that without changing the law or even changing regulation, although I would work really hard to address things like exactly what you're talking mm-hmm. about, I would say that my focus, I realize it's not going to be high profile. You're not going to read about it yeah. on the front page of the newspaper. But for me... One of the things that is a mark of a, of an effective member of Congress is your constituent services and getting people who are effective and competent and who care – Mm -hmm. and who can help veterans and others navigate those kinds of challenges and find solutions within this biggest bureaucracy of the biggest bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. And so that would be something that, for me, I would ask, um, if if I'm fortunate enough to be elected, I would ask my constituents to hold me accountable when it comes to constituent services and and veterans to be vocal if they're not getting what they need and, and seeing ways that my office can help get them what they need and cut through that red tape and and try to get around some of those maddening inefficiencies. So that would be a big deal for me would be constituent services. And again, it's not sexy, but it's important.
0: And it's, it's really cool because, you know, a federal agency, they go off of how many cases, congressional cases they get. So they have to sit down and do a report. And they're like, why are we getting, you know, 200 social security cases or post office or whatever VA cases from Pueblo. And they're like, The the higher-ups in the agency say something's not right there, and generally it it works. It holds them accountable. uh, Constituent services and casework in a congressional office are important because you're taking care of people that basically have slipped through the cracks and have nowhere else to go and it's it's interesting because they'll come in and they're almost a lot of people are ashamed or they feel like you're wasting they're wasting your time and i always made a point everywhere i went like we can help you come see us and we can help you and this is how the system kind of changes a bit but um it's it's really funny to see how an agency will adjust some of their policies and then all of a sudden it's like oh wow the you know, the clinic's great here in Pueblo yes. now all yeah, of a right. sudden because they, they do see that. And they're, the agencies are terrified of congressional inquiries. And, it could, again, it could be any agency. And, and it fixes the problem. And they recognize, agencies recognize that it's not a perfect system and people mess up. And we're all humans and stuff. But you see other congressional offices, I'm not going to name any names right now, Um, where you have one caseworker working on constituent services Mm -hmm. um you know and then you see other offices that that basically won elections based on constituent services you you know um, um, congressman tipton's office is a perfect example because we prioritize constituent services and again it's not sexy it's not going to make the news or it did towards the end which is another issue but uh, um you know, for us, that shows that the the member of Congress really cares because for every person you help, they're going to tell their family. And yeah. how many times do you hear? It's like, well, I don't, I don't like him or her, and you know. But yeah, I once saw his his caseworker, and they helped us out, so they have my family's vote on it.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and, and you know, if somebody's going to a con- you said this one time, Brian, yeah. that if somebody's going to a congressional office for help, it's because that's their last resort. Yes. I mean it's absolutely their last resort but I think I love to hear you say that because yeah. um, I've seen the importance of it working with Brian um, but but not only that when you're really good at, at constituent services the um, the payoff of that goes on long after you're there and and this yeah. is and we're sitting with a, a perfect example of that of yeah how important that is so i love that you that you say that um i'm going to ask you a question that's kind of a political one and, sure um and i didn't you know i didn't let you know i was going to ask you this but i think it's a really important one um and it's it's wildly politicized i wish it wasn't but that is um uh, congressional directed spending what are your feelings on that, and how would you either um, utilize that, or or what would you do with that? Because I think it's a it's a really important piece that that has to be discussed.
2: Absolutely, I am in favor of congressionally directed spending that is uh, measured and targeted and tied to results. I think that's an effect part of what an effective representative in Congress does is identify those projects that are. I, I don't. Favor pork barrel spending or wasteful government spending, but I do believe in investments in communities in a congressional district, and so congressional directed, congressionally directed spending done the right way, I think, is a critical part mm-hmm. of what a, an effective congressional representative does and, and gets district gets dollars into the district that makes sense uh, and that are a good use of taxpayer dollars, mm-hmm. and so in a good investment in communities, and so uh, I, I'm in favor of congressionally congressionally directed spending done right
1: so a lot thank you thank you for that i appreciate it um a lot because we've seen what um uh we we've, we've seen some really great results from that and it's it's you're leaving money on the table that you don't that could be that could be used in a different way we appreciate that so um oh, and sarah if i might oh, yeah, uh, also say
2: um getting back to what we were also talking about before is if you talk to anybody that has worked with me in the last 20 years or that knows me or any of my clients, my philosophy when it comes to my, my practice of law in rural Colorado has been solve the problem. And, and that gets to constituent case services, that gets to the bigger economic issues and inflation, um, and that's also an issue that it comes to congressionally directed spending, solve the problem, and, and be creative, uh, think outside of the box and be solution oriented and and that's what i would tell my staff uh, that are doing constituent services that uh, it's crucially important what you're doing to this to this veteran or for this veteran but it's also crucially important to you know this water infrastructure project the EPA is imposing a, a ridiculous mandate on the the town of Lake City in in Hinsdale County, and as a result, they need to upgrade their water infrastructure well they don't they need the resources to do that, and so that 's an example in my view of of directed spending that makes sense that helps those communities um, deal with circumstances as they as they come and you 're right, um, we should not leave those dollars on the table when they can benefit southern and western Colorado
0: so Speaking of water, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of the, the big things that obviously everybody knows, like if we have California and there's this whole battle of Colorado water and who gets what and where it goes, um, the, the big fear is they want to renegotiate the compact, open mm-hmm. it back up, and then you all we of a sudden you have how many Congress people from California that basically overwrites 54 or something yeah. like a third of the country basically, Right, um, you know, I I think in the past that the congressional delegation has been unified on water in Colorado, the last four years you've seen kind of a little bit of split on how water should be approached. Um, and I, I know you're going to say yes, but will you do everything to fight for our water here in Colorado to make sure California doesn't
2: steal it? Without That's a doubt. the layman's terms. That's yeah, the very so layman's terms.
1: Instead of saying, of course, obviously you will, how would you do that? Yeah.
2: Well, first we need to protect the Colorado River Compact is a key part. And I realize that there are several compacts that are at play here. And we have an Arkansas River Compact. There's a Rio Grande mm-hmm. River Compact. This district covers quite a few watersheds. But with respect to the issues that face the Colorado River Basin, and, and you know the Colorado River Basin matters here in Pueblo because we have transmountain diversions that bring water from the Colorado River Basin into the North Arkansas uh, River, and and ultimately um, help provide needed water here in Pueblo. So. The Colorado River Basin, yes, we're not in it, but it matters here in southeast Colorado. Uh, The first thing is to protect the Colorado River Compact. That cannot change, in my view. That is a core bedrock principle of dividing, keeping the water equitably divided between the upper basin states and the lower basin states. I would also look at... Cutting through environmental regulations that are prohibiting storage, particularly distributed storage in high altitude places within the state where there's less evaporation and there's more Mm -hmm. opportunity to store the water there. There are environmental regulations right now in western Colorado that are prohibiting or inhibiting for decades the development of reasonable reservoir expansion and storage projects. We need to look at revising things like um, the Endangered Species Act protections that are important, that are critical, but Uh, we need to make sure that they're not unnecessarily uh, inhibiting the expansion of those reservoirs. Uh, NEPA is another issue as well that we need to look at. So targeting those things that are preventing the expansion of water storage is another item. The third thing that I would think of uh, that would be important are looking at invasive species, the so-called phreatophytes, which is a very fancy word of saying, a very fancy word for saying tamarisk and Russian olive. Yes. those, Plants are something that are taking up a lot of water. They're also, with their deep roots, they're pulling salt up. Mm -hmm. And when the plants die, they're adding salt to the water and to Mm -hmm. the land around them. So looking at What I would say a large scale uh, mitigation or eradication of phreatophytes would be something else that I think we should look at, and that the federal government is particularly well suited to provide. Mm -hmm. So, uh, protect the compact, make sure that our down basin cousins are living within their water budget, expanding storage, particularly high altitude distributed storage, and then looking at things like phreatophytes and and getting rid of those those invasive species that are sucking up the water and and preventing it from beneficial use.
0: Yeah, and that was a huge thing 10 years ago, and then it just kind of disappeared. I know that was one of the number one concerns from the Forest Service, BLM, the state. Everything was tamarisk. I mean they they were trying all kinds of stuff to get rid of them. Tamarisk there,
2: beetle and everything. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Somebody was like, "That's where the bark beetles from." I was like, "Oh, that's not <laughs> from that really." But but that you don't hear that much anymore, and that's kind of refreshing, you know. Because I go out to the reservoir and you see them everywhere. You, mm-hmm. know, you go out there and it's like yeah, that's really bad for the the water here and the ground and everything. So
2: yeah. I appreciate that. Well, that's an issue we can work on as Republicans and as Democrats yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that I would work hand in hand in hand with uh, uh, Senator Hickenlooper, Senator Bennett, the the rest of the congressional delegation. I think that's something that we as Coloradans can definitely come together on and fight for water with our upper basin cousins and, and make sure that we protect the most precious resource for here for us here in Colorado
1: yeah so we're almost out of time so that leads to the last question I had and I don't know if Brian has a, a final question for you so um you know what we saw in Pueblo and this is just my opinion. What we saw in Pueblo in the last couple of months with regard to the local elections uh, was a, a really strong indicator um, for what our organization likes to see. Um, but we hear about it a lot. So you know, we hear about um, crime or you know, crime and public safety and homelessness. We hear about energy. We hear about water. We hear, all, we hear all those things. The other one that we try not to get into, but this was interesting. What's happened here in Pueblo is, is for the first time, it's a really strong indicator that um we've heard for a long time is that everyone is genuinely sick of that partisanship they're sick of the the um as, as, as uh, your opponent you know would be in in this um uh adam frisch likes to say "Angertainment," um and uh, and he's an action 22 member as well so we have these conversations with sure. our members on a on a regular basis as you know but um it's interesting that, that I, I think for the first time in a long time, um, people are genuinely serious because they see that um, that um, how, how destructive that's been. Um, so my question to you is, how do you stay out of that fray?
2: Well, I think by being sincere and hardworking and also humble and recognizing that I don't have all the answers to everything. I have my principles, I'm a conservative, uh, but I know that we can't make the perfect the enemy of the good. And also we need to work within the political reality in which we find ourselves in. And for a lot of the critical issues that are facing Colorado, that requires being principled and and conservative, but also uh, recognizing that we need to work with folks that are on the other side of the aisle. Um, I think for me personally, I would say, Sarah, I will be somebody that if I disagree, I'll do it without being disagreeable. I'll try to be an effective negotiator for western and southern colorado and i'll also be open to listening to other perspectives and to recognizing that i might potentially be wrong um i you know i know if you look back on uh the sarah or brian of 20 years ago you'd probably say gosh I, they didn't have all the answers and they didn't have all the facts they didn't have all the perspective we don't have
1: the answers yeah. now uh,
2: and i would say you know the 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 Jeff of 20 years ago is the same way, and 20 years from now, I might look back on myself and say, gosh, you didn't quite have all the answers. So having a little bit of that humility I think is important for somebody that's in the public sphere and to be genuinely open to listening to other ideas and to working um, with people that come to the issue from a different perspective and ultimately recognizing that we're trying to do the best thing for Western and Southern Colorado, and from Moffat County down to Los Animas County, um, we are uh, all Coloradans, and that we need to make sure that solutions are at the top of what we're trying to accomplish. So um, what committee would you want to be on if you get elected? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I would say probably either energy and commerce or natural resources mm-hmm. would be the top the top committees that I would look to obviously whether or not I get them is up yeah, to others right. I think that's, but um yeah. I think that's where I could work most effectively would be in those committees and 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 I'm a hard worker and, uh, and somebody that is going to put his nose to the grindstone and is focused on making not national headlines. Um, I'm not ever going to shout at the president or anything like that. I'm going to make local headlines about jobs created and opportunities and water storage projects expanded and broadband getting into homes. Those are the sorts of things. And, and um, reliable energy projects being brought online, those are the types of headlines that that I want to make.
0: If Let's uh, say so you get in there. What would be one of the first bills you'd like to pass or introduce it?
2: I think something that would streamline the permitting process for uh, reservoir ex- and storage and expansion would be a big one, and also energy. I think right now we have a big problem with the expansion of energy in, in Colorado, and a, a piece of that is a federal problem. Mm-hmm. And so that would be, those would be the two areas that I would look at, uh, water and energy.
0: I love it. So um, uh, i got a few more. i got a couple
2: more minutes. Okay, go ahead. Uh,
0: There's a lightning round coming. Yeah, no. no, (laughs) Now um, now
1: you get the hard questions. Okay, no, (laughs) No,
0: good. So going back to how this race changed, so politically it's interesting. And, you know, in Pueblo we saw that they don't like incumbents. Like the, the voters did not vote for any incumbent in Pueblo in the last election, including the mayor election this week um interestingly enough all the republican seats in congress there's no incumbents running i mean you could say that representative bobert is running just in a different district but the the district incumbents aren't running so since she moved over you know we heard this thrown out that oh it's a new race or it's a different race now have you noticed the shift other than more people jumping in the race, which happened, but have you noticed a shift among the, the groups and the people that you're talking to about it? Have they Are they looking at this race different, or is it still – you know? I know you're tracking the same message, and, and that's what you do, and it's the right thing to do, but has it shifted out there among
2: It has. Groups? I think people think I have a, a, a lot better shot. I was always optimistic about my chances, even in the primary. I, I believe in what I'm doing. I think there's a principle here, and I think – People will recognize that, and, and regardless of who my primary opponent was, um, I, I think that was something that was resonating with people, and I was getting traction. Certainly now, Brian, I think people look at it and say, "Gosh, now this—you know, this guy that was entered the race when the odds were really long—it it looks like." You know, he could actually be Mm -hmm. the guy to to win this. Uh, And so there's a lot of support that's maybe coming in that I might not have had otherwise. But I would say I had a lot of support even when the incumbent was still um, in the race. What I would also say, though, is that people recognize the fact that I jumped into the race at the beginning Mm -hmm. uh, when the odds seemed long and when it seemed like a difficult task. And I think they recognize and appreciate that political courage and the principle Um, that I had in entering the race, and they recognize that that's the type of person that we want to have uh, representing us uh, in Congress is somebody that wasn't afraid to take on a tough challenge, that doesn't wait until, you know, a very powerful incumbent is left before they jump in the race. I think they respect that, and they like that, and I hope that will be something that resonates with people. Yeah. Well...
1: I think that's I think that's it, Jeff. It's it's been such a pleasure to get to know you over the last um, the last several months and what you're doing. And and you jumped in, um, understanding that our organization was not a partisan organization. Mm-hmm. That we want, um, for first and foremost, to stay focused on the issues and and what um, what that's about. Um, and so we really appreciate that you're that you were willing to do that. You know, we don't. Um, we're not popular among the politicos because <laughs> of that.
0: From sides, we, yeah. get, <laughs> we get flagged both sides. We
1: get we get flagged from
0: too conservative or too liberal
2: depending yeah, on who you are. Yeah, it talk just depends to, on so. who you are. Maybe you're doing something right. Yeah, that's, that's we hope so.
1: We hope so and so we appreciate you coming on and and being with us.
2: Um, if anybody wants to find out more about you where do they go sure uh, we'll get ready to get a hand cramp as you write this out cuz it's a long url it's jeff hurd for congress or sorry jeff hurd for colorado.com j e f f h u r d f o r colorado.com and i'll put that in the comments so yeah. Um, yeah. with that action
0: 22 i i I haven't done the disclaimer for so long. It's been like three weeks, so I can't remember. Do you want me to try? No. Making Action Happen, Action 22. The candidates come on here. We are nonpartisan. We do not support candidates, but we do support the members of Action 22. So if you're running for office and a member of Action 22, this is your open platform to come on. The views and opinions expressed on Making Action Happen do not necessarily exp- um, represent the views and opinions of Action 22, its board, or its membership, except for profit. H I'm going to say that for the rest of the year. <laughs> <laughs> That's so a very lawyerly
2: sounding disclaimer. <laughs> you did a, you did a beautiful job. Wait, is that, is that legal? Is <laughs> yeah. That, that, legal <laughs> that works. That, okay. passes, that passes the um, test.
1: You did a beautiful job, and, but you have that. Gorgeous, baritone oh, voice when you he do does. it. Um, so, Chad Vorthman, I know that you're listening. Um, I hope that uh, you heard the things that you wanted to hear today, um, but especially we're talking a lot about, and I'm using your words a lot, about um, the advocacy that we are doing outside the Denver metro area, and that's really where um, we're trying to develop. But uh, um, And we want you, uh, Chad, to meet Jeff as just as soon as you can. Hi, Chad. Um, and if, if, Chad, if, he, if he passes your approval, which he probably won't, but um, that's the most important voice <laughs> here. So we'll, we thank all of you, and we'll see you next time on Making Action Happen.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you for tuning in
0: to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.